everyone, welcome to What's the Crime with Gronya and Gemma. Today's episode is about the story of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. And I feel like for most people, those names will probably ring a bell because this was a very high profile case in the UK in 2002. So we would have been, you would have been about... I was 12, but I remember when those names so well. I remember this one picture that was everywhere of the two girls. I was about to say, there's a very famous picture linked to this case as well, which I will get to. But if you don't remember the names straight away, once I talk about the picture, or if you've seen the picture, I feel like it would ring a bell with a lot of people. So the market town of Soham was peaceful, unchanging, and rarely in the news. It was a small, tight-knit community, like many small towns in Britain, but in the summer of 2002, it became the place of one of Britain's most notorious crimes. The Wells family and the Chapman family were very well known. They were warm, welcoming people. Jessica grew up the youngest of three girls in the Chapman family. She was very much the baby at age 10. Her sister Rebecca was 16 and her other sister Alison was 14. And both were very close to Jessica and following in their examples you know it made her mature it made her sensible for her age she was lively she was outdoorsy she liked sports of all kinds she played football for the Soham Town Rangers girls under 11s team and you know in keeping with her sporty personality she didn't really like wearing girly clothes she was more often seen in like tracksuits and t-shirts and her shoulder length light brown hair tied back in a ponytail She met her best friend Holly Wells when the pair were just four years old and attending nursery school and they struck up an instant and close friendship and they were described as like sisters by their friends. So they did have very different characters. So like I said, where um, Jessica was very sporty and she loved like kind of just wearing more casual clothes. Holly was very girly and she loved like wearing skirts and dressing up rather than wearing tracksuits and stuff. And both girls idolized the England captain, David Beckham. So he was like their hero and they were committed Manchester United supporters um, to which David Beckham was the captain at the time. Holly was blonde hair and fair skin and she was described as bubbly, bright and intelligent and like Jessica she was very popular in school and the girls had lots of friends. On the evening of Sunday the 4th of August both Holly and Jessica were in particularly good spirits because the two friends had just been reunited following Jessica Chapman's two-week summer holiday to Menorca. Jessica had returned home the previous day and she'd brought back a present for Holly, a necklace bearing a pendant with the word love on it. That's so cute. It's like when you used to go on holiday when you were younger and you'd be like, Mom, I need to get this for my friend. I know, we'd had to get them a present. Like a keychain or something. Something with a dolphin on it all the time. <laughs> so they, the Wells had invited their close friends, Robin and Trudy Wright, around to a barbecue. So the adults were spending their time talking and tending to the barbecue and the girls spent most of their time in Holly's room chatting and playing on the computer. So shortly after five o'clock that evening, the girls popped out into the hallway to see how the rest of the party were getting on. And they decided to wear their matching bright red David Beckham number seven Manchester United shirts and their matching Adidas shorts that were black and white with two, uh, sorry, that were black with two white stripes down the side. So when Nicola, who was Holly's mum, spotted the two girls in the matching outfits and the matching shirts, she decided to take a photograph of them standing side by side, smiling at the camera. So this photograph is the one that we were talking about at the start. Yeah, it was everywhere. 
that that photograph was everywhere and they had no idea at the time that this picture would be seen by thousands of people nationally and internationally and is still recognizable to this day. I, I always remember as well that um, Jessica was really tan in the photo and I always remember when she came, you know, come back from Menorca, oh, okay. she got yeah. like a wee tan on her holidays. It was just yeah. such a lovely photo of the two yeah, of them. They look so, girls, I know. I know, so happy. So normal, just too normal. We like girls, you know, it could be, it could have been anyone. It could have been us when we were younger. Anyone. It's so it's so innocent. Yeah, yeah. So after this, the girls then returned to Holly's bedroom to play on her computer. Some minutes after five thirty-two p.m., the girls decided that they were bored with being in the house all day, and they went outside for a wee wander. So they left Holly's house and they turned out of the cul-de-sac, heading towards the centre of town. They then turned into a busier street, which becomes Soham High Street, a few hundred yards further up. They crossed the road, walked up a small lane and across the car park of the Ross Pierce Sports Centre. Here, the girls were picked up by uh, security cameras at 6.13pm. So when Holly's parents were winding up after their barbecue, the mood was lighthearted and relaxed and no one had heard Holly and Jessica leave the house. So as far as the adults were concerned, the, the girls were still upstairs playing. Right, so in. they didn't tell anyone that they were leaving? No, they just kind of popped out, you know, maybe going to get sweets or whatever. So the adults assumed that they were still upstairs in Holly's bedroom. So when the time was approaching 8pm that night, and it was getting dark outside, the visitors, who were, as I said earlier, the Wrights, who were friends, um, they were preparing to go home. So Nicola went to call the girls, so that they could say goodbye to their guests. However, the girls were not in the room. So Nicola searched all the other rooms in the house and she kind of got a little bit worried. Uh, She went out to the garden, she went to the front door and then she walked out into the street, but the road was empty. So she told her husband, Kevin, that something was wrong. The minutes ticked by and still no girls in red Manchester United tops came running around the corner. At 8.45pm, Nicola picked up the phone and dialed the Chapman's number. She didn't want to be the bearer of any sort of worrying news or anything like that there. But, you know, the only logical explanation was that the girls had gone to Jessica's house. Okay. That's what you would assume. She was already beginning to feel, though, an awful sort of sense of foreboding that something kind of wasn't right. And when Sharon Chapman answered, she said that the girls were not there either and that the phone call came as a shock. Immediately worried, she dialed Jessica's mobile phone. So she had given Jessica like a blue Nokia 5110. I'm not sure of that model. I think I had one of them. Yeah. So the only reason she kind of had that phone was so that she could contact her mum at any time to make sure she was all right or to see where they were. But the phone did not ring through and the answer machine picked up. And like those Nokias, the battery didn't die. No, no. If it's off, there's, you'd worry. So she did try again dozens of times getting the same response. But she knew Jessica would never willingly turn off her phone. So her sense of panic was rising. So when you think about it, like... They, they kind of thought that they didn't even realize that the girls were gone until around 8 p.m. So, yeah. So, those, what time those did you hours, say they left at? They left the house at around 5 30. Okay. Yeah. So, the, they, they have been gone. Like, y- there is reason to be panicking yeah. because they don't actually know. Yeah. 
thinking that they might have gone to see another friend or member of the family, she started ringing around all of the households that she knew in Soham, but she started to struggle to maintain her composure as she was begging friends and relatives for news of the girls. Kevin, who was Holly's father, and Oliver, who was Holly's brother, they went out to search for the girls. They searched everywhere, up and down roads, streets. Um, you know, they checked the recreation grounds uh, in the church, the supermarket, the Ross Pier Sports Centre. Kevin stopped everyone he saw to ask if they had spotted his last daughter, but the answer in each case was no. After an hour of searching the streets in the car, Sharon pulled up outside the Wells house to ask Nicola if there was any news. The women racked their brains but came up with nothing. The disappearance was so completely out of character that neither of them could think of an explanation as to why they hadn't come home. And so at 10pm, Sharon decided to call the police. Officers were at the Wells home within minutes. Soon, they were mobilising search teams to drive and walk the streets. The police asked for a list of friends of the girls and went around to each of their houses. At 1am, phone engineers tracked the signal from Jessica's pay-as-you-go mobile phone and found it was last detected coming from the area of Soham or the surrounding countryside. So it was it was actually such short notice that they couldn't really track a precise location yeah, as okay, to where so the it phone... it doesn't narrow it down. They just know that it was around there. So that really yeah. doesn't help them at all. Exactly. The frantic search went on throughout the night. The parents were becoming more and more desperate. At 6.30am, the exhausted parents, shattered with anxiety and lack of sleep, they had no option but to take a rest. But this would become the first of many sleepless nights. So the Wells and the Chapmans, they knew that something was very wrong when they realised that the girls had disappeared because it was so out of character for the girls to go off for a long amount of time without letting anybody know where they would be, how long they would be and they were very well versed in the rules, you know, like not talking to strangers, not going places they weren't supposed to. But despite this, they had a gut feeling that something was wrong and they thought that their children might have been abducted. But of course, they clung desperately to the glimmer of of hope that the girls were, you know, maybe lost or even kidnapped but unharmed and that they would be found alive and well. And did anyone think that they might have ran away or? They... They knew that the girls weren't really, you know, they weren't irresponsible enough to kind of just run away. But they also didn't take anything with them. Like they didn't have any clothes. They didn't have any belongings. So, okay, so it did nothing pointed to that. Nothing pointed to that. And they'd never run away before. And they couldn't think of any reason that things would have changed that, you know, they'd be upset about anything. So the... Since they had gone missing, workplaces, pubs, cafes across the country were talking about them and hoping that they would be found safe and well. But like the parents, a lot of people had a gut feeling that from the beginning it was a case of kidnapping. And as the days ticked by, those you know uncomfortable views kind of came more to the forefront of people's minds. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for season three, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, <laughs> Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. <laughs> the Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin whiskey and vodka 
And I mean, we have personally tasted <laughs> all of the above. Numerous times. <laughs> so we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best. But don't just take our word for it. You can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com. Hi, what can I get you? Hi, uh... Can I get two sparkling waters and two, uh, mo, mo, Margaritas? No, uh, two mo... Mojitos? No, sorry, uh, just two mo... Moscow Mules? Having trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name? No problem, because now you can buy your favourite muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste. Over 18s, drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey listening to the next episode of What's the Crime. A police computer uh, selected at random to name the investigation the codename Operation Fincham. And with the investigation declared active, thousands of calls began to pour in. The search group and police called in more reinforcements. A helicopter with thermal imaging equipment and an RAF tornado overflew the, the grounds without finding anything. A bloodhound was brought in from Wales, was also turned up nothing. And like, you know, the police, were they were hopeful that it was some sort of an adventure that had gone wrong. But like I'd said to you, there was nothing to point to that. They hadn't taken any money. They hadn't taken anything extra. And they just, they knew that the girls wouldn't have just run off for, for no reason. So and police were joined by hundreds of journalists from newspapers and TV stations all over the world. So like I said at the start, this case was so high profile and us being in Ireland, being so near, we got all of this news yeah. all of the time. It yeah, was on it was everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, those those people, those um, journalists, they found this new place, this frightened place, which had changed overnight for its residents. You know, there was no kids out playing on the street. People were anxious. They were afraid that this had happened in their own backyard. Like I said, it was a small town. It was a very tightened community. On August the 5th, on Monday at 3.30pm, the parents made the first of their tearful appeals for the return of Holly and Jessica. So the next day, the police arranged for England football captain and original wearer of the girls' um, number seven shirts, David Beckham, to add his voice to the appeal for the girls to return so in a statement broadcast on tv he said please go home you're not in any trouble uh, by your parents who love you dearly they just want you back by the morning of wednesday the 7th of august the police investigation had encompassed the physical search of Soham and the surrounding area 2,500 phone calls 400 door-to-door interviews and the stopping of 700 cars but nothing had been found So in an attempt to, you know, jog people's memories, the investigators staged a reconstruction of Holly and Jessica's final walk. So you know how sometimes in cases they like have actors brought in to sort of wear what the the, the people were wearing. So um, they did this with two young actresses. They retraced the girls' steps around Soham. They had these two actresses dressed in bright red Manchester United number seven t-shirts. And um, at 6.28pm, there was the CCTV that had captured them going across the car park of the sports centre. So they, they kind of, these two girls were walking along. The idea is to try and jog people's memories yeah. if they'd seen them. 
Uh, they then walked along a path along the, the local high school, uh, Soham Village College, and at 6.33 p.m. they were last seen in a neighbouring college road. So their last known sighting was by school caretaker Ian Huntley in College Close, which is right beside the high school before they vanished. So as he was the last person to actually see the girls alive, the media, of course, were eager to speak to him. Um, and I've included um, a portion of one of the interviews that was aired. Ian Huntley here is a familiar figure. Evening, Ian. You're the school caretaker. The girls, Jessica and Holly, would know you, and they saw you on the front doorstep. What, what went on? Well, the girl, I don't know the girls. Um, I stood on the front doorstep grooming my dog down. She'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was, as she used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good as she hadn't got the job. And they just says, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walk in the direction of the, um, the library over there. So his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, who he mentioned there in that interview, uh, she was a teaching assistant of the girls. The girls were very fond of her. She was a teaching assistant in their class in school. Um, she was also very saddened by the girls' disappearance. And on Thursday, the 16th of August, she did this interview with Sky News. Uh, this is something I'll probably keep for the rest of my life, I think. Um, it's what Holly gave me on the last day of term. She was very, very upset. Because I didn't get my job, and that's the kind of girl she was. She was just lovely, really lovely. That's really very sweet, isn't it? Yeah. So family and friends, and you know, peers, anybody that knew the girls were being interviewed by all of these news channels because everybody just wanted to a talk about the girls, and you know, just in the hopes that they will be found. Yeah, and like spread the word, probably. Yeah. A week into the inquiry and the Cambridgeshire Constabulary were feeling the heat. So, you know, officers were obviously doing everything that they could to track down the girls. But um, some sections of the media began to sort of criticise their lack of progress. There was feverish speculation as well that the girls might have been groomed on the Internet. Because remember I said they'd spent their last known... Oh yeah, they were on the computer in her room yes they were on the computer in her room and the people were sort of saying maybe they had arranged to meet somebody or they were on a chat room or something like that but a police examination of the wells telephone bills revealed that they had been linked up to the internet between 5 11 p.m and 5 32 p.m and they'd sent a few emails and stuff which is obviously all you could do back in them days there was no such thing as you know other social media um, but the, the the officer said that they had not um, actually been in any chat rooms or they hadn't arranged to meet anybody and that theory was just unfounded. So I did say that Jessica also had a mobile phone as well. It was one of those old Nokias and it would could obviously only call and text um, and she used it really only to contact her parents um, to let them know where she was and stuff. And like I said, the police discovered that the phone had been switched off. But um, remember I said that they couldn't actually narrow down exactly where it was. Yeah. So uh, it was switched off at 6.46 p.m., which is really only only shortly after the girls were last seen on CCTV, meaning that whoever had done it had most likely been responsible for their disappearance and had to have acted quickly. Forensic engineers were able to locate the tower that the phone pinged off when it was switched off and it was right by college close so it was the exact route that the girls had been walking. 
So the police were, you know, coming every area to find the girls. The the head officer decided that the search um, of the high school just wasn't sufficient and that they wanted to search it again. And on August the 16th at 11 p.m. that night, he got a call from the search team that they'd found something in a locked shed. In a small shed on the campus, two red Manchester United tops oh my God. were found semi-concealed in a bin that had been burned but identifiable. So at this point, you know, the officers kind of came to the conclusion that the girls... Come to harm. That they'd come to harm, that they'd come to some sort of foul play. So the following day, which was 13 days after Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman vanished without a trace from Soham, a local gamekeeper and his friends were treading the bank of the roadway in an isolated spot about... A mile and a half north of the nearest village, which was Lake and Heath. A rough Google map sort of search. It's about an, half an hour from Soham. At around 12.30pm on Saturday, August 17th, they noticed an unusual smell in the countryside. So it was a smell that they'd noticed sort of over the past few days, but it was very unpleasant. So they decided that they would find out what was causing it. They peered into the ditch and for a split second they couldn't make out what they were looking at but realised it was the outline of what could only be a body. Oh God. It was so small and fragile that it had to be that of a child and was badly disfigured and burnt and lying next to it was another equally blackened figure that had been carefully placed side by side. The men managed to um, go to their jeep and call the police and they realized what the rest of the world would soon find out that these were the remains of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. So I did say that uh, the last person to see the girls alive was the school caretaker, Ian Huntley. So that was at five college close. So that was just yards from the high school. So that's beside where the phone was switched off. Yes. So... He shared the house with his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, who you heard talking about the girls to the media. Um, you know, she knew both of the girls well. I prayed, um, I played the recording of her um, interview with Sky News. And, um, you know, he, he said in his interview that he had been out washing their, his dog, which was his Alsatian Sadie, in the garden when the girls walked past. Uh, the girls both of whom liked animals, so they stopped to pet the dog and talked to the caretaker about their favourite teaching assistant, Miss Carr. They asked about her and she was upstairs in the bath and the girls skipped away happy and well. So obviously this case was so widely covered in the media that these interviews by the neighbours, by the family and the friends, um, they were played on those main national news channels at prime time. The Grimsby Telegraph, which was a newspaper from a town um, which was about an hour and a half away, started to get calls from people that the man who had appeared on the television talking about the disappearance of the two girls was 28-year-old Ian Huntley, informing the paper that he was known to have had previous allegations against him. So the Grimsby Telegraph uh, kind of went written around and found in their archives a front page story from 1998 of a woman in central Grimsby that had reported a rape and the man in question was Ian Huntley. Oh God. Aged 24 at that time. 
So although the rape charge was dropped, of course, the newspaper still contacted the police immediately because there had also been complaints of sex offences by Huntley on eight other women and girls, but none of them led to a trial in court, so he had no criminal record. How does that even happen? Thankfully, you know, that's it's different now, but back then it wasn't linked up and he was able to get that job. On the 16th of May in 1998, he had been out drinking in the pubs of Grimsby when he was drawn to an 18-year-old girl on the dance floor with blonde hair who he had seen out before and tried to chat up, but without any success. She was ignoring him throughout the night, but at 2am when she left the club to walk home through a passageway known as Gas Alley alone, he crept up silently behind her, grabbed her by the throat, punched her in the face, tore off her tights and underwear and brutally raped her. After the attack, she thankfully saw an opportunity to run and minutes after arriving home, the girl and her distraught parents rang the police to report her ordeal. The next day, the attack made front page news in the local newspaper, the Grimsby Evening Telegraph, which is the story that they had found in their archives. And um, five days later, he, Ian Huntley, gave himself up at a local police station. He appeared at Britain's Magistrates Court the following day, but was released on bail. Police decided to then drop the case, leaving the victim and her parents dismayed. What? Why? They dropped it because they believed that there was insufficient evidence to achieve a conviction. And he walked free amid, you know, tears from the victim that she was obviously traumatized from her ordeal. So... On hearing this, the police now believe that they are looking at a serial sex offender that had also coincidentally been the last person to have seen the girls alive. And he just, this is so, I'm just disgusted. It's so angering. It is, it's so angering and something, now I don't know if you noticed this, but when I played Maxine Carr's interview which I'm going to play again. It's literally only a few seconds, okay. but she speaks differently about Jessica and Holly than other teachers due to the fact that she refers to them in, in the past tense. The past yes. tense. Yes. Let me play it again for you. Uh, this is something I'll probably keep for the rest of my life, I think. Um, it's what Holly gave me on the last day of term. She was very, very upset because I didn't get my job. And that's the kind of girl she was. She was just lovely. Really lovely. That's really very sweet, isn't it? Yeah. So she uses the words was. Was. Yes. While recording another TV interview for the BBC, the reporter had to actually make her answer the questions again using the present tense. She stuck to the the instructions for a few sentences and then once more slipped into talking about the girls in the past tense. So this is before... The bodies, the bodies were found, were found. Okay. and she's consistently referring to the girls in the past tense. So this is why that seems a bit odd, to say the least. The police, of course, were poring over the exact wording of these interviews. Um, of course, like they would be over all statements taken by everybody, by all interviews from everybody. And the people back in Grimsby were also watching Maxine Carr on the TV. And they were also struck by something in her story. So she was claiming to have been upstairs having a bath while Ian Huntley was chatting to the girls outside. Whereas in fact, she was wandering the streets of her hometown Grimsby 
during the very same time that she was claiming to be back in Soham. And at least... So she was seen by She was seen in, okay. by people in Grimsby on the date that she's claiming to have been in the bath upstairs in Soham. So when she's questioned about her and Ian's whereabouts, whereabouts on the day of the disappearance, she's clear she's at home with Ian at Five College Close where they lived. She goes even into intricate detail, even down to what exactly she had cooked for their Sunday lunch, like cauliflower, roast pudding, all of these things. Um, you know, she said that there was she was with him on day all day, nothing unusual happened. But the police had gotten those tip-offs that she had in fact been in Grimsby on that day. So she's lying. So straight away they know she's lying. So they know that she's lying. They check her mobile phone use from that day and discovered several calls that had been made to Ian from her phone from 100 miles away in her hometown of Grimsby. And she was visiting her mother there. So she's lying. Why is she lying? The police also noticed that in their house, the room immediately behind the front door through another internal doorway had been stripped completely from top to bottom of every piece of furniture and cleaned of every speck of dust. On a photograph taken of Ian Huntley during the investigation by a reporter, he was sitting in his car and whilst the public were looking at his face, the police were looking at his car and the four new tyres that were on his Ford Fiesta. They discovered that he'd bought four new tyres the day after the girls were murdered. He paid £100 in cash for four new uh, Sava Effecta tyres and then bribed the mechanic another £10 to falsify the car registration number recorded on the bill. Okay, well this just does not look good. No. A forensic geologist was brought in to look at his car and discovered that there was a lot of chalk on his car. They then went to the track at Lake and Heath where the bodies had been discovered and seen that the farmer that owned it had recently refurbished the track and had used chalk. The shed in the school where the burnt t-shirts that the girls had been wearing were discovered was only accessible via a key, which only the caretaker had access to. The other breakthrough came when it was discovered that Ian Huntley's fingerprint was on the bin liner bag that had been put over the girls' shirts to conceal them. They also found fibres of the girls' shirts on his sofa in their house at Five College Close. On August 17th, which was the day that the bodies were discovered, Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr were arrested. Maxine, at this point, changes her story. She admits that she was in Grimsby, but she wanted to protect Ian because she knew he would be considered a suspect because of his history of being accused of rape. Ian Huntley was charged with their murders. Maxine Carr was also in custody. Some people, however, believe she knew more than she said that she knew. You know, that they believe that she helped him to scrub the house. She also gave him an alibi. And Ian Huntley then tried to change his story as well, saying that the girls were in the house, but they died accidentally and he tried to explain it as manslaughter. It's not known how the girls were killed. Detectives who worked on the case believe that he hadn't planned to carry out the crime. The girls actually did arrive at his house by happenstance and that they probably were interested in talking to him because of his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, who also happened to be their teaching assistant. But his intentions of enticing them inside can only have been sinister. Police believe that he did tell the girls that Maxine was upstairs and was going to come down to see them. In his absurd account that he put forward at his trial, he claimed that Holly drowned in a bath while trying to stem a nosebleed 
and then he accidentally killed her and then he killed Jessica accidentally by trying to quiet her screaming. Him, him even saying this is just making me so angry. It's just horrendous. Like, p- police, they do believe that the, some of this information, information may have been accurate in the sense that he probably did strangle Holly first and then turn his attention to the screaming Jessica. Oh. Which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Those poor, poor girls. One of them did reach out at his face with her right hand and dug her nails into his cheek. She scraped three mark. Uh, she scraped uh, a mark an inch long, just above the, the jawline. Um, That's just so sad. Like she was fighting for her life. And this was actually noticed the next day by PC Russell Goldsmith. So remember how the media were like criticizing the, the police for the lack of progress in this case. They were on to him pretty much from day one. So they obviously weren't putting this out. Um, you know, to the media. Yeah, but they needed the evidence. Exactly. They were gathering up all of this information before they made any of ar- any arrests and they wanted concrete evidence. And he obviously was, you know, made mistakes and was slipping up as well. And they were, they were on him. And the fact that he had the audacity to, ha- to do interviews with the media. Oh my just, God. And, she, and her as well. Maxine. Like as if they were almost like lapping up this attention that they were getting. Like it's just so angering. Either before or after he did carry the girls to the bathroom, he removed the shirts that they were wearing and lowered their bodies into the bathtub. Um, It's believed that he soaped them carefully and rinsed them both several times to make sure all traces of his DNA were washed off. He then dried them and put their clothes back on. He then began cleaning the house, stripping the room of every single scrap of furniture. And although he had been investigated for other you know sex attacks in Grimsby he had never been convicted and because the cases against him had actually failed he didn't have a criminal record which is mind-blowing it's and the fact that he was able to get that job um you know he he was actually from a very early age he was like a predator unusually for someone so young he was always attracted to girls even younger than himself ex-girlfriends speak of a control freak who loved to dominate um and abuse women he was already displaying signs of being a pedophile from very young you know he's believed to have had sex with girls that were as young as 12 years old and his habit was to groom his victim in like a flattering friendly manner and you know he was reported to police eight times he was investigated for rape four times and on a further three occasions for having sex with an underage girl this is this is just i i can't the fact that he was able to secure that job is terrifying now Thankfully, that has obviously changed due to the implementation of information sharing and police databases to avoid these situations in particular. And it's not known the exact extent of Maxine's involvement either, whether she knew exactly what happened or whether she actually genuinely believed him and and was just trying to protect him. In September 2003, she was charged with perverting the course of justice and was sentenced to three years, but only served six months after her time spent. She's just one of four ex-UK prisoners protected by lifelong anonymity, along with James Bulger's murderers and child killer Mary Bell. She has since rebuilt her life and married, and no one knows her new identity. On August 20th, Huntley was charged with two counts of murder and sentenced to two terms um, of life imprisonment with a minimum of 40 years behind bars. 
uh, he wouldn't be considered for release until 2042 at the earliest when he will be 71 years old. So he actually has a daughter. Um, he had a daughter uh, with a lady from a relationship prior to his relationship with Maxine. Um, and the girl that he had the baby with was only 15 years old at the time that she became pregnant with his child. So their daughter, Sammy Bryant, now 24, she has since spoke out about, firstly, the what must have been devastating time when she discovered who her biological father was and what he had done. And she said that she decided to write to him in prison to ask him why he murdered two innocent children. He replied to her in 2017, writing, I have given an awful lot of thought about how best to respond and what, if anything. I should say I realise I can't just say no and expect you to accept that. Firstly, I truly don't relish the idea of discussing or you listening to the details of what was unimaginably the most horrendous day of my life. Oh, like he's a victim. Furthermore, I can promise that even if you did, you wouldn't feel any better for it, nor would you feel any closer to understanding. 15 years on, I still don't understand what the hell went wrong that day. So she says that she realizes that not everybody will know why she contacted him, but she was hoping for at least some sort of remorse or explanation or, you know, she said she didn't know if she would forgive him, but she just, even just to hear it, like that must've been very confusing and awful for her as well. But she said that she will never ever meet him or visit him now. So one thing that stuck out to me when I went back over this case at the age, this age now was how young Ian Huntley was. Yes. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like I remember being what, 12 at the time and I, and seeing interviews with him and thinking, just thinking he was older I like yeah. up. what age is he he was only 28 like, that blows my mind like he was my age now he was then I thought he was like an older man yeah but even looking at the interviews now I still think he looks older than 28 yeah he does he does look older than but 28 I, he was so young he was so young when all this happened and like whilst being so young we obviously just seen him as older than he was yeah for the families of Holly and Jessica, their agony is eternal. Sharon and Les Chapman, Jessica's parents, have very rarely spoken publicly about the ordeal that they've suffered. But a year after the introduction of the Police National Database, which was created to close gaps in information, sharing, you know, between police forces, which was obviously introduced for, like I said, whenever he was able to secure that job, um, they did release a statement saying, we hope that the database's use will mean other families don't suffer the same loss and heartbreak as we did. And it's just so, so painful what they must have gone through. And, you know, unimaginable. All you can really say is just to rest in peace to the beautiful souls that were Holly and Jessica. The most of the information that I got for this episode, I got from a book called Beyond Evil Inside the Twisted Mind of Ian Huntley by Nathan Yates. If you want to give that a read, it gives much more detail about this this whole case, which I've kind of tried to summarize um, for this episode. And we uh, hope that we will see you again. Well, not see you, but talk to you again next week. And you'll tune in for the next episode of What's the Crime? Thank you. Bye.